Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In March 1994, tears streamed down the face of former NHL tough guy Carl Brewer as he stood listening to an official read a 62-page indictment inside a Boston courthouse. As a defenseman for the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 1960s, Brewer was known as a strong and quick skater with silky mitts. He was also a tough-as-nails scrapper who led the NHL in penalty minutes for two seasons. But his biggest fight came later in life against a man whose overlapping roles as an agent, union leader, and tournament organizer made him the most powerful man in hockey for more than two decades. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back at the rise and fall of the man once known as the hockey czar. This is the story of Alan Eagleson. Hockey in Canada is a religion, so the person who sits atop the sport is like a god. For over 25 years, Alan Eagleson, also known as the Eagle, ruled the hockey world by convincing the players he represented through his roles as agent and union boss that he was a benevolent leader with their best interests in mind. When cracks started to appear in the facade he created, it would take the efforts of dozens of players like Carl Brewer along with other hockey agents and dedicated journalists to knock the eagle off his perch. But before we get to how he fell from grace, let's take a step back and look at how Alan Eagleson became the man with all the power. Born in St. Catharines, Ontario in 1933, Robert Allen Eagleson didn't grow up playing hockey. He played lacrosse. He picked up the sport following his family's move to the West End suburb of New Toronto. When Eagleson became a lawyer in the early 60s, an old lacrosse buddy asked him for some legal and financial advice. Bob Pulford had transitioned to professional hockey and was now playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Soon, Eagleson had half a dozen Toronto players as clients, including Carl Brewer. It started out with him giving them a little legal advice, maybe a little financial advice, and then the relationship became a little more formal That's retired Globe and Mail sports writer David Schultz. He says by 1966, Eagleson's client list grew to include hockey's newest superstar. Bobby Orr was just 12 years old when the country was first alerted to the fact that a phenomenally talented boy was tearing up minor hockey in Perry Sound, Ontario. Three years later, at the age of 15, Orr moved to Oshawa to play for the Generals, and the defenseman dominated junior hockey like no other. So in the summer of 1966, by the time Orr was 18 years old, he had already reached near-legendary status in Canada. And his NHL debut was eagerly anticipated. But before that happened, Orr and his father enlisted Alan Eagleson to act as the hockey player's agent. The Boston Bruins had offered young Orr a $5,000 signing bonus and a two-year contract that would pay $7,500 for his first season and $8,000 for his second. But Eagleson played hardball with the Bruins. He hinted Orr might attend university in the fall instead of playing professional hockey if he didn't get a better deal. After going back and forth for several weeks, an agreement was finally hammered out on Labor Day weekend just before the NHL training camp started. 
or signed a two-year contract worth $80,000 that included a $25,000 signing bonus. By the standards of the day, it was a monstrous deal. During the 1966-67 season, the average hockey player was paid between $15,000 and $18,000 a year, or would get $25,000 in his first year and $30,000 in his second. The rookie wasn't far behind hockey's two biggest stars at the time, Gordie Howe and Bobby Hall, who earned $35,000 and $40,000 a season, respectively. A few months later, in December 1966, Orr and a number of players from the Boston Bruins enlisted Eagleson for something else. They organized a meeting with him, asking if he would help start a players' union. You see, they were fed up with the NHL, which wasn't keeping up with other professional sports. Players didn't have a pension plan, and some earned as little as $4,000 a year. Eagleson, who had a thriving law practice in Toronto and was also an Ontario member of provincial parliament, had a lot on his plate, so he said he would think about it. Over the next several months, Eagleson went around the league, meeting with players, getting a sense of how much support there was for a union. It quickly became clear there was a ton. By the end of May 1967, Eagleson advised NHL President Clarence Campbell that he had pledges of support for the creation of a union from virtually all NHL players. The next month, the NHL Players Association was recognized by the league's governors. Bob Pulford was appointed president, while Eagleson was named executive director. Among other things, Eagleson promised pension plans and insurance payments to injured players but it was a promise that Eagleson would not keep. Before the tarnish started to show on Alan Eagleson, he also played a role in helping to organize the famous 1972 Summit Series, an eight-game hockey tournament between Canada and the former Soviet Union. The series brought us the greatest sports moment in Canadian history when Paul Henderson led the Canadian team to victory by scoring the winning goal in the final minutes of Game 8. Henderson going down, got to the defense, goes right on his goal, he scores! Henderson, right through the score for Canada! A beautiful goal by Paul Henderson! For sure you can't talk about the series without remembering Henderson and that goal. But David Schultz says Alan Eagleson is probably the second most remembered person from the 1972 tournament. Anybody of a certain age who remembers the Summit Series remembers Eagleson uh, his grandstanding in the last game uh, in, in Moscow when he uh, <laughs> was escorted across the ice by the players because he kicked up a fuss in the stands over uh, one of the referees' calls and... Uh, and I guess the, the Russian soldiers were closing in on him. After the highly successful Summit Series, Eagleson helped to organize the Canada Cup, which Canada won four of the five times it was held between 1976 and 1991. To get the league's permission to allow players to participate in these international hockey tournaments, Eagleson made a deal with the owners. He said, Proceeds from the Summit Series and the Canada Cup would go into the players' pension fund so that owners would not have to make a contribution. At the same time, Eagleson convinced the players to participate in the tournaments free of charge, promising them the money generated by the event would help build them big, fat pensions that would take care of them for the rest of their lives. It seemed like a win-win for everybody involved. Players would get better pensions, owners wouldn't have to pay for it, 
and Eagleson would be able to continue his ascent as hockey czar by being the face of international hockey. All the while, Eagleson was also building a massive stable of clients. He acted as agent for at least 150 hockey players, and many of the greatest ones. In addition to Bobby Orr, he represented Daryl Sittler, Lanny McDonald, Mike Palmatier, and Marcel Dion. As famous as those guys were, Alan Eagleson was just as famous. That's because he moved in powerful circles. He wasn't just hanging around with superstar athletes. He was also rubbing shoulders with other high-profile lawyers, judges, and politicians, including former prime ministers. Eagleson himself was no longer an MPP, but from 1968 to 1976, he was president of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Most importantly, though, Eagleson had a very cozy relationship with some hockey team owners, including Bill Wirtz, who owned the Chicago Blackhawks. And he was a known buddy of John Ziegler, who had taken over as league president in 1977, replacing Clarence Campbell. All of that coziness put Eagleson in an unusual position. He represented players as an agent and union boss, and his job was to get the best working conditions and contracts for them from the very people he was friends with. Even to the untrained eye, it seemed like a major conflict of interest. But David Schultz says in the beginning, Eagleson was able to convince the majority of hockey players that he had their best interests in mind. And most of them came from uh, small town or rural backgrounds, and, and they weren't very well educated because if you're going to be uh, on track to be a professional hockey player, uh, school took a very low priority. So most of them uh, probably didn't even have a, a high school education. Plus, because Eagleson was the agent for most of the league's biggest stars, that gave him a lot of clout with the rest of the players. Because in the NHL and in any sports team, there's this very clear pecking order. And it goes from the best player down to the worst. And if you're the guy whispering in the ears of the best players, well, you you will control pretty much uh, what all of them think. Despite the control Eagleson had over players, there were definitely rumblings within the league about his various conflicts of interest. And those rumblings got even louder in April 1980 when Bobby Orr parted ways with Eagleson, his longtime agent and friend. For years, Bobby Orr had known something was wrong with the way Alan Eagleson was handling his money. And when he retired in 1978, he found out the awful truth. One of the greatest hockey players of all time who had played in the NHL for 12 years, winning two Stanley Cups, was completely broke. And to make matters worse, Orr learned that Eagleson had cheated him out of a lucrative opportunity towards the end of his career. When Bobby Orr was being courted by uh, Bill Wirtz to come play for Chicago, the Boston Bruins offered him 10%, well, they offered it through Eagleson, so 10% of the franchise if he'd sign with them. And of course, Eagleson didn't tell Bobby Orr because his buddy Wirtz was, you know, going to sign, uh, wanted to sign Bobby Orr. So in the end, yeah, Bobby Orr, even though, you know, he was, by this time, his knee injuries had taken a huge toll, but he signed with the Blackhawks. But he found out later he could have had 10% of the Bruins. I mean, just think what that's worth today. At the time, Orr didn't publicly reveal why he had severed ties with Eagleson. He was too embarrassed. 
But it wouldn't take long before other players learned that Eagleson had tricked them too. The big pensions he had promised didn't exist. For example, Mr. Hockey, Gordie Howe, received a pension of just $13,000 a year after spending 25 seasons with the Detroit Red Wings. And he wasn't alone. Defenseman Brad Park retired from the NHL in 1983. After 15 years spent playing mainly for the New York Rangers and the Boston Bruins, his pension was also just $13,000 a year. Bobby Hull, with 16 years, and Phil Esposito, with 18 years in the plan, were both getting just over $10,000 a year. It just didn't make any sense. Plus, injured players weren't getting the insurance payments they were promised. David Schultz says they were left completely on their own. If a player suffered a career-ending injury, he got basically nothing from the NHL because Eagleson had never put a decent uh, medical plan in place or health insurance or negotiated for one. And then, you know, when they did get something over the years, you had to go chase down your own benefits. So the players would turn to Eagleson and say, how do I get my, uh, you know, my crappy little benefits? Well, Eagleson would charge them. He would bill them as, 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 like he was their lawyer. And and this is what he did to Blair Chapman and all kinds of other players to get the, what they were entitled to, the little scraps they were entitled to. This guy's billing them by the hour. And, and it's like, well, wait a minute. That's part of your job as head of the union is to see that I get my benefits. Schultz says when players tried to confront Eagleson, who was known for his swaggering and swearing, he often bullied them into backing down. He would ridicule players at uh, union meetings who dared question anything he did. And sh he would shut them up by embarrassing them in front of their peers. And, and, you know, players weren't that sure of themselves, especially on, you know, labor issues. And they would all quickly back down. But things started to change in the 80s when a new wave of players who came from the college system and were better educated joined the NHL. They felt more confident to question why Eagleson wasn't achieving greater gains for them in collective bargaining. Things like free agency, which could have led to higher salaries. They accused Eagleson of sacrificing their interests for the sake of his cozy relationship with team owners. The worm began to turn in 1989, when a group of roughly 200 hockey players hired Philadelphia lawyer Ed Garvey to investigate irregularities in the NHLPA. Garvey was the former executive director of the National Football League Players Association, and he was not easily intimidated. One day, Eagleson called Garvey directly after hearing what he had been hired to do and said, back off, I've got you in my sights. Garvey simply laughed and said, well, I hope you shoot straight. With the help of Hamilton lawyer Bill Dermody, along with player agents Ron Salser and Rich Winter, Garvey uncovered some shocking truths. For example, in 1987 and 1988, Eagleson had improperly loaned more than $2 million of NHLPA funds to several of his friends and associates, including a mortgage of $500,000 to his law partner. Garvey prepared a 55-page confidential report about Eagleson's practices and presented it to players at the NHLPA annual meeting in West Palm Beach, Florida in June 1989. As a result, players voted at that meeting to oust Eagleson as head of the union. 
But the NHLPA Executive Committee, which was stacked with Eagleson cronies, overturned the vote. Still, it was a major turning point. First of all, Rich Winter, one of the player agents who had worked with Garvey on the report, sent the information they found to the Law Society of Upper Canada, filing a formal complaint against Eagleson in January 1990. He also filed complaints to Toronto Police as well as the RCMP. When Canadian officials failed to act, Winter wrote to the federal authorities in the United States, and they referred the matter to the Department of Justice. Once the FBI and officials from the Department of Labor got their hands on Winter's documentation, they started to build their own case. At the same time, the Garvey report also inspired a small-town newspaper reporter to start digging into the case. There was a uh, reporter in the Boston area named Russ Conway who worked for a a small-town newspaper called the Lawrence Eagle Tribune. And Conway covered the Bruins. He was sports editor, but among the things he did, he covered the Bruin games. So Conway got wind of what happened to Bobby Orr, and he started looking into it. And before long, uh, with his boss's approval, this is pretty much what his full-time job became, was looking into Eagleson. And what he found turned the tides on the hockey czar. Beginning in 1991, Russ Conway published multiple articles in the North Andover newspaper. Plus, he wrote a now-famous book called Game Misconduct, which got a lot of press. Conway revealed, among other things, that Eagleson had skimmed money from players' disability payments, lent union funds to friends and associates at favorable rates, and billed the union for personal expenses, including a London apartment and Wimbledon tickets. He also reported that even though Eagleson had promised that profits from the Canada Cup would support the players' pension fund, there was very little money left after subtracting questionable expenses racked up by Eagleson. Of the $42 million generated by the five Canada Cups, a whopping 70% was eaten up by expenses. Conway also outlined two cases of former players who were reportedly shafted by Eagleson. The first was Ed Kea, who suffered a career-ending head injury in 1983 while playing for the St. Louis Blues minor league team. Kea and his family were unable to collect disability payments because Eagleson let his insurance lapse without telling him. The other was Andre Savard, who Conway said was also cheated out of $100,000 in disability payments following a career-ending injury in 1984. For years, there had been whispers that Eagleson was involved in some shady practices, perhaps even colluding with owners to keep salaries and benefits for players low. But now it was all out there in black and white. Prior to Conway's coverage of the case, there had been other reporters who had tried to expose Eagleson. But Schultz says Eagleson used an old technique to keep the majority of journalists on his side. Anybody who's been able to control the media always knows the the secret to that, pass out scoops. And, uh, you know, you'll you'll have them eaten out of your palm. Conway's coverage could not be ignored, though. Finally, in December 1991, under mounting pressure, Eagleson stepped down as the head of the NHLPA and was replaced by Bob Goodnow. Meantime, following a year-long investigation by the FBI and the U.S. Justice Department, authorities convened a grand jury to determine if there was enough evidence to proceed with charges against Eagleson. It was an exhaustive process. 
And over the next two years, the grand jury heard from dozens of witnesses, including hockey greats Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky, and Tony Esposito, along with former NHL president John Ziegler. Sam Simpson, formerly an Eagleson employee and one of his closest cronies, also testified, as did two of Eagleson's Toronto Tailors, who were both given lucrative Canada Cup contracts for Team Blazers and Slacks. While the grand jury investigation was taking place, a group that called itself the NHL alumni decided to take matters into their own hands. Carl Brewer and six other former hockey players, including Andy Bathgate, Gordy Howe, Bobby Hull, and Eddie Shack, filed a lawsuit in Ontario, Canada, against each NHL club, league president John Ziegler, and the NHL Pension Society. The suit claimed the owners had misallocated $24 million in surplus pension money. In October 1992, a provincial court ruled in favor of the players, and the NHL was ordered to distribute an estimated $50 million award through increased pension payments. Finally, thanks to the hard work and determination of former Leafs defenseman Carl Brewer, retired players would get some of what they were owed. Hall of Famer Red Kelly compared Brewer to a terrier. Once he had his teeth into it, he wouldn't give up. He just kept going. But the fight wasn't over just yet. Brewer still wanted to see Alan Eagleson taken down. And on March 3rd, 1994, his wish became one step closer. It's alleged in the indictment that is unsealed uh, this morning in Boston that Mr. Eagleson, over a period of 15 years, engaged in a pattern of racketeering, fraud, kickbacks, and self-dealing for himself and for others. Following the two-year grand jury investigation, Alan Eagleson was charged with 32 counts of fraud, embezzlement, kickbacks, obstruction of justice, and the most serious charge, racketeering, which could result in a 20-year prison sentence. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Carl Brewer cried when he heard the charges being read. He told reporters, it's not that he was happy to see Eagleson possibly go to jail, it's just that he wanted him stopped. The indictment alleged many of the same crimes laid out in the Garvey Report back in 1989 and the more recent articles and book by sports writer Russ Conway. The gravity of the offenses was still shocking, though. The 62-page indictment charged Eagleson with using at least $250,000 of the union's funds to pay for personal expenses like skiing, golfing, ballet tickets, paintings, furniture, and gifts and dinners for friends. And the indictment charged Eagleson sold rinkboard advertising to Air Canada in exchange for $150,000 worth of air travel passes, which he used himself instead of giving to the union. But Eagleson was not going down without a fight. His lawyers began a lengthy and complicated legal battle to prevent Eagleson from being extradited from Canada to the U.S. to face the criminal charges in Boston. In the meantime, Eagleson's troubles continued to grow. Multiple civil suits were filed against him by players. The Law Society of Upper Canada charged him with professional misconduct. And finally, in December 1996, six years after Canadian police began investigating, the RCMP charged Eagleson with eight counts of theft and fraud. They involve activities during the 1984 and 1991 Canada Cups by Eagleson and his colleague Arthur Harnett. Two of the counts allege Eagleson defrauded Labatt's of revenue from rinkboard advertising during the tournaments. And the Mounties accuse him of stealing from some of the organizations which he helped to run. 
Around this time, Eagleson lost one of the lawsuits filed against him by former NHL player Mike Gillis. He claimed Eagleson, as his agent, charged him over $40,000 to collect a $275,000 insurance claim that had already been settled. The judge who ordered Eagleson to repay the $40,000 fee plus damages described him as a glib witness with an ability to mislead and lie. Alan Eagleson continued to fight extradition to the United States through 1996 and into 1997. It seemed like the matter would never be resolved. But behind the scenes, officials in Canada and the U.S. were working out a plea agreement that was finally announced in January 1998, nearly four years after charges were laid in Boston. Under the agreement, Eagleson would plead guilty to three charges of mail fraud in Boston and agree to pay a million dollars that went toward compensating the players he cheated. But there would be no jail time in the U.S. That's because under the second part of the agreement, 64-year-old Eagleson would return to Canada where he would plead guilty to three counts of fraud and receive an 18-month jail sentence to be served in that country. Eagleson stood before the judge in U.S. District Court and in a hoarse voice said the word guilty three times, guilty to three counts of mail fraud. He now admits that he misused funds from events like the Canada Cup, that he took money destined for the player's pension and used it to buy expensive suits and other luxuries for himself. Current and former players flew in from various parts of Canada and the U.S. to witness the fall of the man they once embraced as their champion. Players from the 1950s and 60s, including Bobby Orr, lined up outside the courtroom an hour early and then sat shoulder to shoulder on court benches. The room was so full that reporters who attended were forced to sit in the jury box during the proceedings. And when journalist Russ Conway, who blew the lid off the case once and for all, walked into the room, the players broke into applause, something Conway described as embarrassing. The next day, Eagleson appeared in a Toronto court for the second part of his downfall. And once again, the room was packed with former hockey players. This time, however, Eagleson did not remain silent. After pleading guilty to three counts of fraud, he turned to the men he once represented and said in a raspy, cracking voice, I sincerely apologize for any harm that might have been caused, and I hope I will have the opportunity in the future to make a positive contribution. Eagleson's lawyer also did his best to rebuild his client's reputation before sentencing. He read from a pile of 30 letters of endorsement that had been written for Eagleson from various friends and colleagues. Those who wrote letters of support included hockey greats Paul Henderson, Daryl Sittler, and Bobby Clark, along with former Canadian Prime Minister John Turner. In handing down an 18-month jail sentence, Judge Patrick Lesage wasn't as supportive. He said to Eagleson, by harming others, you have brought disgrace on yourself. That night, Eagleson checked into the Mimico Correctional Center, where he was assigned to one of the facility's 32-bed dormitories to serve out his jail term. But that jail term ended up being much shorter than expected. Eagleson was granted full parole after serving one-third or six months of his 18-month sentence for swindling NHL hockey players and tournament organizers. His lawyer insists there was absolutely no reason to keep him in jail. By the time Eagleson was released, a lot had changed in his life. He was disbarred by the Law Society of Upper Canada, stripped of his Order of Canada, and removed from the Hockey Hall of Fame. 
something former players like Bobby Orr and Brad Park had been demanding for some time. I challenge today the Hall of Fame to remove Alan Eagleson. If they do not, I will request that I be removed. I do not want to be on that wall with that man. A lot has changed since Eagleson stepped down from the NHLPA in 1992 and was succeeded by Bob Goodenow. Agents can no longer represent players and coaches or club executives. Players' salaries have skyrocketed. Their pension fund is well endowed by events like the World Cup, and they're kept informed about NHLPA finances. Carl Brewer, the man who tirelessly fought for those changes, died in 2001 at the age of 62. In addition to his fight for better pensions, Brewer's hockey career spanned 22 seasons. He was a stalwart on the Toronto Maple Leafs' blue line with Bobby Bond, Tim Horton, and Alan Stanley during the Leafs' three straight cups. He was named to the All-Star team three times in his career, but he has not been inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Russ Conway, the old-school reporter who helped bring down Eagleson, also passed away in 2019 at the age of 70. In 1999, the Hockey Hall of Fame acknowledged Conway with its Elmer Ferguson Memorial Award for bringing honor to journalism and hockey. 74-year-old Bobby Orr is alive and well, spotted most recently at the Winter Classic Hockey Game at Fenway Park on January 2, 2023, when he helped drop the puck to start the game. He spends his winters in Florida playing golf instead of old-timers hockey. He says it's a lot easier on his worn-out knees and hips. As for Alan Eagleson, David Schultz says the 89-year-old continues to live a pretty comfortable life. To this day, I say he got off way too easy for what he had done, for the amount he stole from the players. And, uh, and you know, then he just came out of jail and he had plenty of money salted away from uh, all his years uh, with unfettered access to well, what should have been rightfully the players. And so he ever since has lived a very high lifestyle, splitting his time between Collingwood and, and London, England. Eagleson recently raised eyebrows when he was interviewed to mark the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series. Reflecting back on the tournament, he said, I'm very proud of what I accomplished, and I don't think anyone else could have done it. But it seems not everyone feels that way. When festivities were held in Toronto on September 28, 2022, to mark the 50th anniversary of Team Canada's Game 8 win, Eagleson was not invited. Thanks for listening to this look back at the rise and downfall of Alan Eagleson. And thanks to David Schultz for sharing his memories about the years he spent writing about the damage done by Eagleson. Schultz has written several books about hockey, including Greed and Glory, The Fall of Hockey Czar Alan Eagleson, which he co-wrote with William Houston. If you'd like to hear my full interview with David, head over to www.patreon.com slash history of the 90s, where subscribers always have access to uncut interviews. History of the 90s is also on social media. Look for us on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. If you have a suggestion for a topic, you can drop me an email. The address is 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 